Well, good morning everybody. I just said that for the purpose of the tape that is now spooling. Um, so, we are up to 1 <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 4. And today I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through to 5. So I'm only doing the first quarter of the chapter. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is no but with me it is a very small thing that and sorry, excuse me. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So... Paul tells us that he is a steward of the mysteries of God. But what does it mean to be a steward of the mysteries of God? So we know what a steward is. A steward is one who manages something they don't own on behalf of the owner. So it could be that you're managing an estate on behalf of someone who's away, or you're managing the grounds of a, of a beautiful castle, or... You're managing somebody's money, finances. You are stewarding their money and you are entrusted with it. And if you're stewarding their money and you take some of it for yourself without telling them, that's actually a breach of trust, obviously, and a criminal offence. But you are not acting as a steward should because you are looking after something. You are ensuring that something that someone has given you thrives and you are stewarding it. So that's simple enough. But what is the mystery that Paul is talking about? What is the mystery of the thing that he is stewarding? And what does that actually mean? Because the mystery of God that Paul is talking about here is not something hidden. It is not a hidden piece of knowledge that only the elite can understand. It's not something that only those of us who are super spiritual understand. It is not special knowledge for I was going to name some people, but I won't, because I'm a silly joke. But it's not, it's not special knowledge that only a few of us understand or are privy to, like in the Masonic Lodge, where you get more knowledge as you go up the ladder. This is not that at all, because the mystery that Paul is talking about is the mystery of the Gospel. So we've all heard it said, I'm sure... That Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and he is in the New Testament revealed. And we know that the gospel is hidden in the Old Testament. Jesus is hidden in the Old Testament, but he is alluded to. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament, many, many prophecies. Jeremiah, we read about how God will make a new covenant with his people. 
We read about how God will place his laws on his people's hearts. We read about in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Various psalms are what we call messianic psalms, which allude to the gospel and so on and so forth. And of course there is the, God, uh, there is the scripture about Israel at the end of the age looking upon him whom they have pierced. All of these things are allusions to the future, to Christ and to the gospel. And they are not always very subtle. Of course, in hindsight, they don't appear subtle. At the time, it would be quite different, I imagine. And so, but these things were essential. They were essentially hidden, and therefore they weren't explicitly stated as such. So it's not. So in the Old Testament, there is nowhere you will read, Jesus will come on this date and he will take the sins of his people. There's no explicit statement. So in that sense, it is a mystery. And so the Old Testament laws that we find in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, etc., these are shadows of what were to come, of, of what is to come, what was to come. They are shadows of the reality of what God wanted to do. Because these laws were an expression of God's perfect justice. And there were stiff penalties for breaking these laws. There were stiff penalties for disobedience. And the penalties ranged from being cut off from Israel to being stoned to death. And um, there wasn't much in between, actually. And there was an example, um, there is an example in the book of Numbers of a man who was caught collecting wood on the Sabbath. And uh, some members of the community brought him to Moses and to Aaron. And they kept him in custody. And so Moses and Aaron sought the Lord. And the Lord said, he must die. So they stoned him. Now, it's incredible when you think about it, because Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of breaking the Sabbath. And he said to them, which of you would not rescue a donkey or an oxen, I think it was an oxen, who had fallen into a ditch on the Sabbath? Would you simply leave that animal where it was? And so Jesus said, which of you then wouldn't heal someone on the Sabbath? And so the point that Jesus was making was that it is not the Sabbath was not made to be adhered to in some kind of rigid way so that you don't do good, necessary good, that might involve some degree of work. But this man who went collecting wood on the Sabbath wasn't rescuing an ox in a ditch. This man wasn't saving somebody's life. It's quite possible that this man was either being quite careless and had forgotten about the command that the Lord had given about obeying the Sabbath. It's quite possible that he may even have been defiant and said, I don't care, I'm going to get wood. God provided on the Sabbath, he provided a double portion of manna for the Sabbath so that the people of Israel didn't have to collect it. And this man may simply have either been careless or defiant. Either way, it was, a slap, it was a metaphorical slap in the face of God because he did not obey the Lord his God. And each time God gave a command, after each command he would say, 
I am the Lord. He gives the command and he says, I am the Lord. And the reason why he says that is because on his authority alone he gives these laws. So the point is that these laws are a shadow of what was to come and they are also a perfect expression of his justice. And so we may think, oh, when we're reading them in these books, we may think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. It doesn't seem fair that that man should die because he went collecting wood. But it was an expression of his perfect justice. And we know today that many of us do do work on the Sabbath, so to speak. I have mown the lawn on Sundays. <clears throat> it depends which day you count as the Sabbath as well. Um, there's, um, but let's just say Sunday for the sake of argument. I have mown the lawns on Sundays. I might mow them today. I usually mow the lawn on Sunday. I usually do. And um, no one here has stoned me to death yet. But, um, and I would not expect to be because I would call you hypocrites. Because you probably do other things on Sunday like clean your car. So if we wanted to live like that, we could. We could say, no, there's no mowing lawns on Sunday. There's no cleaning cars. There's no nothing. And, um, and we could stone people to death who, who, who break those laws. And then we'd end up in prison because the defense of that would not be very good. But we're not living like that. And that's an absurdity. So we live in a time of grace. And it's something that is um, a conscience issue, if you like. So, the man who collected wood, he broke God's law. They were not living under grace in those days. They were living under the law. And it was quite clearly the case that it was impossible to obey that law. And that is why God brought his son. So the mystery of God is the gospel. The mystery of God is hidden in the Old Testament. And of course it's revealed fully in the New Testament. So we have no more burnt offerings. We have no more grain offerings. We have no more fellowship offerings. Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement for the Jewish people. The day when they fast to atone for their sins. We don't do that. You may feel to fast in relation to perhaps a sin that you've committed. Or a sin that someone else has committed and you want to help them. I don't know. That's a different matter. You may feel to fast for certain things, but there is no need to fast to atone for your sins because Jesus took all of our sins. So, that is the mystery that Paul is a steward of. Paul is looking, well, he's on behalf of God, he is bringing the gospel to many different people. And we know exactly what he did from the book of Acts. So Paul isn't concerned about how the Corinthians, or anyone for that matter, judges him. Judges him on the issue of how he brings the gospel. He's not concerned what the Corinthians think of him. He's very concerned about the Corinthians, but he is not concerned what the Corinthians think of him. Because we all have a judge, and that judge is the Lord Jesus. And this is the judgment seat of Christ, which Paul talks about in the previous chapter. Now, I believe from memory that the term judgment seat of Christ is in 2 Corinthians. I can't remember the exact um, scripture. So it's not referred to as the judgment seat of Christ. Standing right. <coughs> Sorry. It's not referred to as the judgment seat of Christ in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, as far as I recall. But it is 
the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is where your works are judged. And Paul expands on this to some degree because he tells us that the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the heart will be revealed. Those things which are in darkness will be revealed. And the hidden counsels of your heart, that is the things you cherish in your heart, sinful things will be revealed. And you'll recall that Jesus also said these things. Those things which are hidden will be shouted from the rooftops. Now, of course, that doesn't literally mean shouted from the rooftops. It would have been an expression or turn of phrase back in those days that this is something that will be aired everywhere. Today we might say will be list will be will go viral online is the same kind of thing. It is it will just be out there. That which is hidden will be revealed. So when we face Jesus on judgment day, the hidden things of our hearts, the dark things that we're hiding will be revealed. And if you think about it, this is quite a scary thought. So, I'm not 100% sure. It's hard to know for certain. But I think I would suggest to you, and you may have difference of opinion, and that's fine, and you may want to look at it more closely yourself, but I would suggest to you that the things that are, is being referred to here that when Paul talks about darkness, hidden things of darkness, counsels of the heart, I would think that we're talking about unconfessed things or unconfessed sins. Darkness that's been hidden and sin we know starts in the heart or in the mind. These are issues, so unconfessed things. Now issues or sins, kind of inter issues and some people say they have issues, so they don't see them as sins, but they probably are. So issues slash sins, which you repent of, they are nailed to the cross, I believe. Now, you still may live with the consequences of these sins. If, for example, the sin in question was an illegal sin, you would have to live with the consequence of that. If you were in the habit of cheating on your tax return for the past 10 years, such that you were prosecuted, you may repent of this sin before the Lord, and he no longer counts it against you, but you will have to live with the consequences of whatever the prosecution brings. And some people have been in prison for cheating on their tax. So, there's always consequences. But in God's reckoning, this sin no longer belongs to you, as it did before. And it means that you can have fellowship with the Lord because there isn't that thing between you and God. But this does bring up a fairly complex issue. So we know that when we come to Christ in faith, our sins, those sins from the past, present sins and sins in the future, they are all forgiven. And this is our judicial position, and it means that we have eternal life. All sins have been carried by Jesus, and we appropriate this sacrifice that he made for us in faith. 
So in faith we appropriate the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and we are forgiven. Just as the chap in your communion message is forgiven of his sins. But if you think this means you can sin with impunity, think again. And I don't think, I don't suppose for one minute there's anyone here who has that thought in their minds. So if you do think this, if you do think it's fine to do exactly as you please, that's quite possibly or probably a sign that you don't actually believe in Jesus. You may think you do, but you don't really. So again, uh, in Mike's message, the chap there is his name Action? Sorry? Afshin. Okay. Where was he from? Okay. Afshin. Anyway, so he was profoundly changed through his encounter with Christ. So the, the, the thought that he would then think, oh, I can carry on being Hitzbullah because I've been forgiven, it's, it's, it's inconceivable. That is a very powerful testimony, obviously. So if you think it's fine to do exactly as you please because you are judicially fine with God, it's quite possible that you don't actually truly believe it. Um, and Paul said, God forbid that we should sin, that uh, Christ, that God's grace continues to abound or abounds more. And he says that in Romans. Okay, so but having said that, sin, sin is still very much a thing in a believer's life, and it still very much exists. So there's a big difference between just sinning with impunity as you please uh, and actually struggling. There's they're two very different things. So we know that sin is still very much a thing because throughout the New Testament we are warned not to indulge in the lust of the flesh. And that just means that it could be anything from literal lust through to material things, through to all sorts of things. Um, and we're told not to indulge those things. Sexual immorality not to be even mentioned among you. Okay? Now warnings like this would be meaningless if it wasn't possible to do these things. If, as a believer, you actually could not do it, Paul wouldn't warn against it, I would have thought. That seems quite logical to me. He might say things like, if you're doing these things, you're not actually saved because, blah, 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 there'd be some statement to the effect that you cannot sin. And I know there are some scriptures which seem to say that. But given that we are told throughout the New Testament not to indulge the flesh in various forms, it suggests that we can still, and that the flesh, the old man, or the old person, still very much lives. So, while those with faith in Christ know that we are not free to please ourselves, we know that we are not free to just do what we like with impunity and please ourselves, there are some who have faith in Christ who nonetheless get ensnared for whatever reasons. And there are all sorts of things they could be ensnared in. I mean, people, believers, can be careless. Um, they can be hopping around a field like a little rabbit, and they get caught in a trap, and they're not paying attention. And it could be anything. It could be a TV program. It could be music. It could be anything. I only meant... Um, some people can watch TV and they're fine. Other people, they get ensnared 
it's a question of being alert and being close to the Lord. But if you're walking carelessly, you can get ensnared. Maybe like that guy who got wood, maybe he was being careless and had forgotten about what God had said. But if he was truly wanting to please the Lord, he wouldn't just forget. He wouldn't be careless. And if it was in defiance, that's another matter, as I said. So Christians can be careless and they can get ensnared very easily if they're not careful. And so some sins are because something triggers something when you do something, I don't know. And other sins are obviously strictly forbidden for everyone, and that's sexual immorality of whatever type. So, on the one hand, those who are in Christ, they are declared not guilty, and they have imputed righteousness. And Paul talks about this at length in Romans. They have imputed righteousness. Christ's righteousness is imputed into them. But we know that God will still discipline us in relation to individual sins. And those things, secret things, that we hold onto, that we hold as being dear to us, or maybe not, depending, but which we hold onto nonetheless, these will be brought to the light at the judgment seat of Christ. So this is a very, very sobering thought when you really think about it. And it should challenge us. It should challenge us in relation to how we are living our lives in Christ today. Do we have a fear of the Lord? Is a, a challenge. Because we know that the fear of the Lord keeps us from sin. The fear of the Lord keeps us from evil. Now those who are being careless and get ensnared in whatever it might be, it's, it's, de it's not debate. It, you, if you're being careless, it suggests that there is no fear of the Lord because you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're not praying about what you're doing. You're not perhaps um, walking with the Lord in a way that would stop you from doing these things. There's no fear of the Lord. And we should be mindful of Galatians chapter 6. I just want to read Galatians 6 verses 7 to 8. And so in Galatians 6, 7 to 8, we read, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And it goes on to say, let us not grow weary in doing good, etc. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So, <clears throat> Galatians 6 isn't about the occasional sin or sinning now and then that we repent of, keeping short accounts with God. It's about how you live your life. Whether you live your life for yourself or whether you live your life for God. So, it's very, very important that we, um, that we live 
in such a way as to please the Lord. So that, our, so that what we hide doesn't become revealed at the end of the age. So if you're a Christian outwardly, but cherish or hold on to sin in your heart, it must be revealed. If you don't surrender it to the Lord, don't repent of it, he will reveal it at some point in your life, if not now, then at judgment, at the judgment seat. Um, how many times has he allowed those who are high up in the, in the body of Christ, famous preachers, etc., who have also done things that they shouldn't have done? He reveals these things because they must be revealed sooner or later. And um, I just wanted to read something here from the Word for today before closing, and it's about um, obedience to conscience. And the scripture to it is um, 2 Corinthians 1.12, and it says, We are proud that our conscience is clear. And so it reads, In my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers writes, Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know, and continually reminds me of what that standard demands. If I'm in the habit of always holding God's standard in front of me, conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. The question is, will I obey? God always instructs us down to the last detail. He does not speak with a voice like thunder. His voice is so gentle, it's easy for us to ignore. And the only thing that keeps our conscience sensitive to him is the habit of being open to God on the inside. When you begin to debate, stop immediately. Don't ask, why can't I do this? You're on the wrong track. There is no debating possible once your conscience speaks. Whatever it is, drop it and see that you keep your inner vision clear. Paul writes, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world. So let us live according to our God-given consciences, rather than dulling our consciences and holding on to things that will sooner or later be revealed. So, Father, we thank you and praise you, and we just ask, Lord, that you would help us all to apply your word today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.